Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore, and joining me in studio today is Mr. Andrew Weiss. Good to have you here, Andrew. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, I always like to start off asking, is there anything cool you've been watching on Netflix? You know, um... I've been so up to my eyeballs in watching Jim Jarmusch's other films that I haven't uh, watched anything in a while other than that. So <laughs> I don't really have too much interesting to say on that regard, unfortunately. Not a problem. That means that we can just dive right into it. So as you said, we're watching a Jim Jarmusch movie. The, uh, the one that we've selected for this week is 2013's Only Lovers Left Alive. We want to introduce the movie the same way that Netflix does, looking at the descriptions that it's chosen for us. First off, when you hover over the title, how it describes the movie is, they're centuries-old hipsters who survive <laughs> by drinking blood cocktails. For them, all of life is retro and ironic. <sighs> Isn't that ghastly? That's awful. Unbearable. It's really condescending. Like yeah, it's... ironic. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think that's really unfortunate as a reading. It's. It seems like somebody just looked at the poster, cast judgment right. on it, yeah. and then wrote a synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know like what the word hipster is doing in this context and broader, more broader culturally. It's a really weird word that is this kind of vague catch-all that uh, describes things that are sort of mindful of fashion and but like it can be good or bad depending on the context or i don't know it seems bad in this right like especially adding the ironic tag at the end there like it's just looking down on these like look at these look at these people who are who think they're cooler than everybody but also trapped in and out of time at this uh it's awful uh when you click on the movie it doesn't get too much better it says the centuries-long bond between vampire musician adam and his mysterious lover eve is tested when eve's spirited little sister ava shows up that seems to put a little too much importance on ava but i mean i she is an interesting foil to them for sure but it makes it sound like petty drama when it really isn't and it it gives kind of too much credence to the threat that she represents yeah absolutely when absolutely it, really, it doesn't test the relationship no like, it just makes it interesting it just shows something about it yeah it it, it shows that they are a unified front even yes. in the face of the like, horrible family it's right. not you did yeah <laughs> terrible job netflix yeah you did a it's bad not, job on it's this not one melodrama here and neither of those are good copy either. Like neither no, of those would make right. me want to watch the movie. Yeah. I, I've wanted to watch this movie because of its reputation and right. because people are so excited about the idea of listening to this. Right. The categories that the movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are Halloween favorites. Weird. Halloween. Okay. I guess because they're creepy vampires. But we saw this last week that uh, apparently Nightmare Before Christmas is also a Halloween favorite. Sure. Um, that makes sense. Right. I don't think that having two Halloweens to go by is really enough to judge something as a favorite either uh it also belongs to the category scary halloween favorites uh no absolutely not nope uh dramas and independent dramas those are fair Uh, yeah all right not extremely helpful but well if you're gonna look for it in blockbuster it's not gonna be in horror it's gonna be in drama right right? yeah that's a good blockbuster Blockbuster, though man that really (laughs) is a blast from the past eh? um and the movie is described as quirky Okay. Which I kind of. Yeah. Uh, I could go ro- with that. Romantic, which yeah, it definitely, definitely is. Most definitely. And scary. No. Again, <laughs> it's, it's just not. Like, plainly not. 
I don't know. I guess because there's blood and <laughs> because they're vampires who are just so totally mired in the genre of horror. But I don't, I think that conceals more than it reveals. It doesn't really help. It's really lazy. It's like, there yeah, are vampires the, yeah. in this. It must be a horror movie. Right. It's, I guess there's a couple of seconds where it's kind of yeah. scary when like the beast within is revealed and oh sure but, they're a little tense maybe but i don't think that i i doubt that the person who wrote those descriptions right and and put those assigned those categories <laughs> looked far <laughs> enough into it because i i know the two moments that you're thinking of it's like when adam is in the hospital and he sees the woman's leg bleeding right right and then there's a moment when Eve is on the plane and a man across the aisle from her cuts his finger on a can and she sees it bleeding. And both of those are very tense moments where you wonder what's going to happen. You think they could just fly off the handle at any moment. And it seems like maybe their whole mission when they're, uh, you know, kind of venturing into the common world, you think their whole adventure might be compromised at those moments. And that's really interesting. But I think it's like a moment of sympathy with the characters and fear for what could go wrong and not like fearing for your own safety or life or fearing for the other characters. Like yeah, you're really just hoping that they can hold it together. You're exactly, like, come on, come on, come exactly. on. Like, you're yeah. not sympathizing with the potential victims. Yeah, you're sympathizing not. with the potential aggressor. Yeah, exactly. The, the moments I was thinking of that were actually kind of actually scary are... One of my favorite just flashes of a scene is towards the end when, when Adam and Eve are both very hungry. Yes. When they've gone to Tangiers yeah. and it turns out that their supply of blood isn't isn't right. available. And those drug pushers right. are are really aggressively approaching I've got what you need. You need. I've got what you need. And Adam goes, you don't have what I need. And yeah. he like flashes yeah. those bright blue eyes. That's like really for th- at that, it was like, Whoa, like you're yeah. actually going to like, you see the, the beast yeah. start to come out. Yeah, for sure. And then at the end when right. they actually do, you know, decide to, to feast on, on living flesh instead right. of hospital supplied blood where right. like, where it's like, okay, fine. At some point you do need to accept the monster, but it's interesting. It's still tempered very much. Even, with the sort of initiatory gesture that Eve makes where she says, excuse me, you know, very politely. And, you know, she says to Adam, oh, we're just going to turn them though, right? <laughs> you know, which she says is very romantic of her. And I have to kind of agree that um, it's interesting that they take this moment of desperation, you know, the desire to survive by any means necessary and turn it into kind of something romantic, a, a kind of shared project of theirs to continue living and to, I don't know, I guess have this influence on these young people's lives and maybe hope that they'll turn out a little bit like them, you know, I think is a lovely idea. Okay, so the, at first it, it took me a little while to get into the movie because sure. it's, um, to put it kind of stupidly, it made me feel stupid. Okay. Because it's so, um, you know, these, these vampires have been alive for, I believe she's been, if we're going like extra textual at this point, like she's been alive for something like 2000 years. I think she says 3000, 3000. Yeah. And then he's only about 600 years old, Right. but they've been alive long enough to, uh, you know, to have experienced a lot of the great things that human culture has been able to create. Sure. Let me see this at first with Adam, when he's talking, when he names the first guitar that he gets brought and he says, I'll, I'll name it William laws. And for me, listening to that or watching that, I was like, Oh great. Like, 
William Law is like, of course, this movie is going to be all, all pretentious and make me feel bad for not being terribly <laughs> well read. And then even when they got into the stuff about like Christopher Marlowe, like it, right. it seemed very much like, like you'd have a better appreciation for the text if you're better read sure. and have listened to a lot more music and are more aware of it. But I kind of, I let that go because I realized that I can just look it up afterwards and then just sure. have it be further enriched. And it, it's really good world building that they're not just throwing out the obvious ones. Like there's the the dig at William Shakespeare that gets right. thrown in a little bit later. Which is really weird. I, you know, I watched some interviews uh, and Q&A stuff with Jim Jarmusch and um, uh, Tilda Swinton. And uh, he actually believes this, that, um, you know, that, <laughs> Wait, yeah, yeah, that Shakespeare was an illiterate hack or something. And Kit Marlowe has this hilarious line uh, where he calls him a, um, I don't know, an, an illiterate fool or something. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> Jim Jarmusch will go on the record to say that he actually believes that um, Shakespeare didn't write a word of the works that are attributed to him. And he puts himself in this lineage of prominent intellectuals in the early I think uh, 20th century who believed this, like Sigmund Freud, and I can't remember actually who else it was, but there are a few uh, few prominent intellectuals who apparently believed this. Um, and he thinks it's like one of the great scandals of history that will one day maybe be revealed. But this, I don't know, it seemed kind of campy to hear him endorse yeah. it. You in do, the real you do world, hear a few times where you definitely feel like I, I'm so nervous about pronouncing it, Jarmusch. Yeah, Is that I don't you, know. I mean, I would say Jarmish, whatever. Well, where at least where you hear the writer director, where you hear yeah. his voice come out, like like with that, where he's kind of casting his right. judgment on William Shakespeare while celebrating and praising Christopher Marlowe, sure. who's a, a very very near predecessor of William Shakespeare. I believe they were born in the same I year, contemporaneously for sure. But kind of, uh, he died yeah. very uh, suddenly died, and yeah, prematurely. I'd, yeah, like very stabbed to death mysteriously, yeah. and yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating read sure. in, in the limited amount that I've, I've read about right. Christopher Marlowe, where you can really see how it would be tantalizing to kind of fit a vampire lore on top of that. Right. But you also get Jim Jarmusch's opinion and his kind of stamp of approval on Jack White. Yeah. A little yeah. bit later in the movie, which I know they've collaborated before. He played right. a character in Sex and Cigarettes, I believe it was. Coffee and Cigarettes. Coffee and Cigarettes, yeah. sorry. Yeah, um, he plays himself, and there's a little scene there uh, with him and Meg and an Vandergraft generator. I don't know. It's a very strange part of the film, <laughs> but like, it, it's another one of those times where the, the director seems to be kind of just injecting his own opinion rather than, and then really focusing too much on the world building where it's like, you've done this great job of kind of splicing these characters into history potentially. And then every once in a while you go a bit too far. We're just like, yeah. Mm. And William Shakespeare sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought it was kind of an interesting, uh, gesture fictionally I think as a real world opinion it seems kind of ridiculous but uh, to sort of suggest that maybe history didn't play out precisely the way we tend to think it did um, and that there are more actors uh, at play than we tend to suspect that you know more people have a hand in things that it's maybe not just the work of very few um, insanely talented geniuses who produce all the work but that there are many people who kind of have a hand in it and contribute things and so on i think that's an interesting point that's one of my favorite parts is the uh kind of the concept of instead of these vampires being either entirely cloistered away and they just only come out to feed or instead right. of them kind of abusing their power and becoming prominent figures they become 
like muses to history mm, yeah. where every once in a while they'll just feel so compelled to create something right. that they'll just allow their creation to either they'll either like develop an identity or they'll just allow a creation to kind of seep into the world right. and, and let it let it do as it may it's almost a science experiment where like okay right. i know that i have this genius inside of me so right. I'll, I'll let the world dabble in it and see what they do with it and then i'll, I'll check back a little while later right. and see how they're doing Right. It's interesting to think about Adam's relationship to his music, um, I think, in light of that, where at first when I saw the film, I thought he must hate that his music is getting bootlegged and released. But, you know, because there's that scene when they go to the bar and you see Ian um, pass this uh, record to a friend of his that's like all black, has no label and in a black sleeve. And Adam watches him do it and doesn't say anything or seem to protest. And so there's this funny way in which he seems to allow it to happen. And so maybe there's some deep part of him that wants it to be released. I think he very specifically wants it to be released. Sure. Like that's why that's what Ian's role is, right? Like isn't his job to be a, a silent distributor to try and get it out there but to have it be as vague as possible? I feel like that's the sort of disavowed role that he has. Like it seems like his primary purpose is to be a intermediary between Adam and the world. You know, he's he's sent on all these little quests to fetch things for him, to find these guitars, to get the um the bullet made and um is always kind of saying is there anything else you want me to get? Is there anything else you want me to get? And so he's he's kind of there as a little servant of sorts. And then it seemed like he was maybe using that position to make the music known like somewhat unbeknownst to Adam. Um, and I think, I don't know, that kind of uh, secrecy or de denial at work there is very interesting. I, don't, I, I, think it's, I think it's a bit more intentional than that, though, because yeah. like, if that music had gotten out right. and Adam wanted it to be kept entirely a secret, right. he would have been way more furious. Like, Ian would have had to have stolen that music from him. Right. So then as soon as it was leaked then that would have been a tremendous scandal between them. Like, right. I, I really think that he's supposed to just kind of like get it out there and let it go. But then right. you're right that like Adam seems surprised when his music is being comes played. on. So yeah, he's like, exactly. you're putting it out there, but then you're surprised when it comes back. Yeah. Cause there's this one line where Ian says to Adam, you know, I think with all this secrecy, uh, and you never leaving the house or anything. It's just going to make people more interested in your music. And Adam says, Oh, what a drag, you know, like he, he, he does want to stay hidden in some, in some respect. So there's a kind of some contradictory impulses there. He wants it out, but not too out there. I think it would have made me happier if not that it's my job to rewrite the movie, but if he had just <laughs> said like, it'll make people more interested in you because mm. that seems ultimately what he's, what he's, averse to yeah. like he hates not even for himself but for everybody he hates the idea of fame and how, right. how polluting that can be when sure. you know you get caught up in your own in your own self and your own identity and maybe that's what's upsetting for adam is that mm. he's starting to he's getting immediate feedback from like a crowd of people right where right. he's like oh no like i don't want to hear this be consumed i just right. want to put it out there and for it to live its own life right and for maybe it to become uh listened to much later on like to have a delayed reaction that would be less 
dangerous to him as a person, you know? Right. Or even just, even just for it to to happen, to happen organically, like to just, let's put it out there and see what happens. If it spreads, it spreads. But I think it was really shocking for him to, to have it come back so immediately and for it to have already spread to California where, where Eva claims to have hurt, Ava claims to have heard it. Right. And to have the uh, young people, dinging his doorbell at all hours of the night to see if he's there they've somehow tracked him down to yeah that residence. made me really skeptical of ian it made me kind of disappointed in him that he allowed himself to be tracked to right because right. that's the only connection right like it's, that's the only connection yeah i mean i wish ian had been fleshed out a little bit more you know because each of uh adam and eve have at least one friend that we see you know uh adam of course has ian and eve has bilal um, the human friends that is and there are some interactions between the respective vampires and their human friends but never uh, do we see anything I think on the terms of those specific characters like I don't really know what Ian as Ian does I know what Ian does as a servant of Adam but uh, he seems to be a kind of thin character there's a little bit of his interest in Eva which is sort of interesting but he's still kind of a prop for them you know which is good insofar as it allows more screen time for the other characters but i feel like if we knew a little bit more about them it might even reveal even more about um, adam and eve in an interesting way i think when the the one difference that i did notice um is in their knowledge or lack thereof of adam and eve as vampires where bilal obviously knows that eve and um, Kit are vampires and he says I will keep my master's secrets safe and your secrets too to Eve and, but uh, when <laughs> uh, Adam sort of underhandedly praising Ian says you know Ian for a zombie you're alright <laughs> <laughs> Ian nods and smiles in approval and as soon as Adam turns his head Ian has this look on his face like what the hell <laughs> like what I don't know what that means but okay I guess we'll take yeah, it yeah it's just he's humoring this eccentric artist right. rather than <laughs> so he has no idea that Adam is a vampire I yeah. think so. I think that's that's sort of the world that Ian inhabits is he's just yeah. he's surrounded by he's surrounded by musicians like he's right. surrounded by people who are just fabricate whatever identity they need right. for the sake of creating art and it's his job to kind of navigate through that right. and be the almost he's like this ignorant kind of shrewd where he knows when to not ask questions right. and to just get the job done right and he's fine with it he's fine to just right. kind of go find the opportunities be right be useful sure and then every once in a while you know he gets something out of it he gets paid astronomically right. well by the looks right. of things and then you know every once in a while he gets to you know gets to sleep with women right which he seems <laughs> yeah, pretty excited about even sure. though it doesn't necessarily end too well for right. him yeah i mean i think it also might be indicative of the kind of world that uh adam lives in and the kind of world that eve lives in or rather the kind of life that they lead where Adam seems to me to be tendentially interior. He's always kind of um, holding himself up. He, uh, he's my little pack rat, as uh, Eve calls him. He's accumulating all these instruments. Um, he lives this very private life. He always seems to kind of want to be more alone. Even his musical 
projects, you know, he doesn't seem to collaborate with anyone. There's that great sequence where he's recording music and it's just shot after shot of him laying down overdubs. And there's that great like double exposure of him playing the drums where you kind of see two shots of him playing at once. And which is actually, I think, a great depiction of the musical process, actually, just as a sort of aside here, that music and making music is a practice of repetition that you just kind of have to sit there and do it over and over and over. Um, I think it's really true to the creative process there and something we don't see a lot. You know, I feel like depictions of musicians are uh, often focused on live performance and they just seem to emerge out of nothing and express this perfectly formed thought and then disappear again in this sort of spectacle. But um, to see him in private in the studio um, kind of mulling over these things very carefully um, and becoming very absorbed in it, I think, is is a really great depiction of what it means to be a musician or an artist. And it's interesting to me that he keeps doing it until he's begrudgingly interrupted by the external world when uh, the doorbell rings. And he says, oh, fuck, or fucking hell or something. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and so by contrast, where Adam is this sort of interiorizing, interiorizing <laughs> character, um, Eve seems to be this exteriorizing character. She's always kind of um, going these great distances, going these great lengths to learn about others, to expose herself to others, learning like she moves to this whole other culture, um, you know, living in Tangier and Morocco is a very interesting decision. And uh, Jarmusch says something pretty interesting about it in some Q and A's where he says that it fascinated him so much because it's not a Christian culture it's not a alcohol culture even it's not a western culture it's i guess it's a hashish culture he says so the the choices in um music and religion and um pastimes i guess drug use are all very different and so it it represents quite a contrast from detroit this kind of heart of america and the failure of industrialization but at any rate she um she always seems to kind of keep reaching out to different things and different people. And so for her to reveal the vampire secret to Bilal um, and to, you know, spend her time in cafes where there are other people and um, to kind of expose herself to the public in a way that Adam refuses to do makes for such a great contrast between those two characters. It is really fascinating the way that they, they individually interact with the world. Yeah, for because- sure. You know, they're they're introvert and extrovert. Yeah, they're absolutely. producer and consumer. Like Oh, uh, that's interesting. Uh Adam at the end of it, despite being all you know, being very much wrapped up in himself and yeah, I cannot stress enough how right you are about sure. the beauty of that shot of him layering the music on top yeah, of itself. Right. And it's so true to the kind of music that he's doing where his only collaborator is himself. It's really exquisite. But he ultimately is a creator. He's producing right. something that's going out into the world. Because right. there is that record that Ian has in his hand and it does make it beyond their limited social circle. Yeah, and Eve, on the other hand, she's such a rabid consumer of culture. Like when, right. when she goes flying, the only thing that she needs is her books. And we right. see her doing her, her cute kind of speed reading of right. this, this rapid consumption of right. art and literature. And just piles and piles and piles of books and books in different languages. Like there's German, Latin, uh, Italian, I think, English. 
there she's reading in arabic at one point yeah that's yeah. right yep. yeah yeah there's so much like, stuff there's contemporary art there's classical texts for sure and that's so beautiful for their relationship as well because yeah, he's a creator of music and she's so very much a consumer of music right like the beyond reading like we see her reading a bunch before she goes on the plane but the other thing we see her do is dancing right and i love eve's relationship with dance because she's yeah. been alive forever right like for nearly literally ever for, right. for the sake 3, of history years that's longer than recorded history or just about and so uh, she I, I love watching tilda swinton's performance when she's dancing because this is a woman who would have had every opportunity to learn proper right, forms of dance. Right. Really, you know, wrote and, right, and, and very kind of specific of kinds of dance. And I right. bet that she could pull that out whenever she wants. Sure. But when we see her dancing and when we see her interacting with Adam's music and even just when she puts a record on right. to just celebrate, it's not it's not a structured dance. Right. She's just feeling music. Right. It's incredibly playful. Right. So you see this, this, it nearly becomes cyclical where he creates something, she consumes it. And then he's inspired by her right. because she's the one who's kind of feeding life back into him. Right. So they have that's it's, it's this beautiful process that they've yeah. created in, in their relationship with each other. The heart of the movie is their relationship. Absolutely. Like it's, it, yeah. It's feeling the beauty of everything that they've created together yes. and seeing how, how healthy everything sure. is yeah like even at the limit of unhealthiness like even with adam's uh suicidal uh urges you know she still finds a way to reach out to him right and it's not it's never that <clears throat> their relationship is broken it's right. that individually they have crises but right. they know enough like they're, they're they're so strong in their relationship that they can call on each other for help yeah absolutely like Adam, the first thing we see him really do is to ask for a wooden bullet. Yeah. And assuming that we've kind of read the descriptions, we know that he's a vampire. So we know that he's planning on killing a vampire. And at first we're not yes. sure is like, is he planning on killing Eve? We don't know the nature of their relationship. Right. But once it's clear that he's intending to kill himself, you know, Eve comes running or i guess she doesn't really know at that point but right. he kind of just she's worried about him yeah she's worried about him so she comes tired she says yeah. so she comes to visit and then right. when she gets there she realizes that he's going through this crisis right and they have this interaction that she's she's clearly exhausted at having this conversation yes. once again but also knowing exactly by being her she kind of reinvigorates his existence in life yeah. But they also have this understanding in their relationship that being side by side all the time isn't what either of them really needs. Like Adam right. needs time to go off and be by himself. She yep. needs time to go off and be extroverted and yeah, for sure. you know, smoke a hookah and and, right. and do whatever she needs to do. So there's this this healthy respect for each other's individuality, but understanding yes. that they are at their strongest when they've had a chance to cycle back to each other and to to be regrounded in each other, where she gets to be nurturing to him, he gets to be reminded of the beauty of life by her, and you know they yeah. they really feed into each other. And they're not; it's not that there's clearly one person who has power right. and they're lording it over the other person. Right. They're just at different experiences in their life, but we literally see them in the movie each taking turns being the big spoon and the little spoon that's like, yeah exactly right like they they hold each other yes. at various points in the movie depending Deep on who's side. kind of in the in the most need of yeah. comfort it's a really really beautiful love story it is incredibly beautiful Where, so intimate too i think um you know there's a kind of familiarity between the two characters that we rarely see in love stories or that i've rarely seen you know it seems like a lot of love stories are about the um 
the beginning or the end or both of a relationship that you see a kind of explosive initial attraction and this fiery passion, whatever, and then something goes wrong and it bitterly dissolves. But you rarely see the middle parts where the passion has um, maybe transformed into something a little more level. Um, and that's exactly what's at stake here where <laughs> at stake, <laughs> at stake. <laughs> yeah, where they're so comfortable with one another that, um, you see the way that they interact with a great deal of experience with each other's struggles, their particularities, you know, when Eve is, um, kind of asking Adam in the car about, um, what he's up to, or I can't really remember exactly what she's asking him about. And he sort of keeps resisting and um, brushing aside her questions. And she has this exclamation and frustration. Oh, come on. You love telling me about all your obscure, weird artists and uh, all these things that you're interested in. So you can, you can tell at a moment like that, that they've been here before a number of times. And exactly like you were saying with um, Adam's crisis, it's like you get this sense of the history of their relationship there that it's happened before. And, um, both the frustration, but the insight and the creativity that comes with that experience is um, profound and beautiful and great to have a, a model for that in um, in any medium, I suppose. It's, it's interesting that a lot of it is the omission of any kind of negativity between each other. Okay. It's like they've... The feeling that you get is that they've moved past it. Right. And... Uh, I don't know if that's actually something that's achievable. I don't know yeah, if you can be together right. long enough to like not get on each other's nerves anymore. Right. Maybe that's why they they you know like when they feel that point, they're like, okay, well, you know, I'll see you, I'll see you in a in a couple decades or whatever right. it is. Yeah, because I'll Facetime you. Yeah, it's not clear how long they've been apart before the film. Well, you she's know. never seen the place that he's got set up, right? So that's right. So and that, he seems pretty well established he, where he he's is. Quite settled there, so it may have been decades. Um, it could have been a very long time indeed. So maybe that's a that's an insight that they have. It's a luxury that they have as long living creatures um, to have time apart from one another. I think and, it's something that's underappreciated in relationships. Uh, you know, people t like to rush in to move in together and um, that's seen as like the hallmark of an excellent relationship. And, you know, something of course that many of us aspire to, but uh, having that counterexample of lovers who live apart because they love each other and come together again because they love each other is very interesting, I think. Well, and it's interesting that even uh, Kit or Christopher Marlowe yeah. or whatever he actually calls himself, um, that even he kind of thinks that what they're doing is silly. Well, like he makes the comments like, I don't understand why the two of you. Oh, right. Like why you live in on the opposite sides of the world or however right. it is you that he says need it. each other. Yeah. And he's somebody who is, you know, he's inspired these great works of love and the literature. And he, right. you know, he's inspired William Shakespeare. Right. And, and even still he doesn't get it. Even though right. he, he, you get the feeling that he's older than them. He's been doing this right. vampire thing for longer than they have. Right. They both kind of recognize that he's a kind of an elder vampire is the vibe that I got. But he, maybe right. it's just because it's John Hurt. Because John Hurt's right. he's just an older man. Yeah, he's been an older man since the womb. But <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine him younger. <laughs> but they've got it figured out more than anybody else ever had. And instead right. of having the crisis between them. We have Eva show up, or Ava. I think I'm going to say Ava because Eva sounds too much like Eve. Yeah, totally. Um, where 
Ava shows up and she's the disruptive force. But right. as I mentioned earlier, like she's not actually disruptive to their relationship. She right. just kind of shows them both why they are the way they are. Like right. it helps Eve kind of temper her, her right. outgoing nature while also yeah, teaching totally. Adam that there can be value in kind of getting out into the world. Right. That's well said. Yeah. Because initially Adam is like, I'm not going to have any of this. Um, and Eve is like, Oh, come on. She's family. Let's do this. And then it's not long before Eve says, okay, now I need you all to myself again. <laughs> you know, we need to get her out of here. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's ultimately really beautiful and romantic. The idea that, to we'll say people for the sake of ignoring the fact that they're vampires and, and pretending that this is something we can all aspire to right but the idea that people can love each other enough that it's possible to distill your relationship just to the best parts by being right. true to yourself right because that is that is what they do they don't yeah. fight with each other because they know they've figured out a better way to do things right. and it's i've never before in watching all these probably dozens if not hundreds of vampire stories like you know the whole idea of a vampire is supposed to be like or at re, of in recent memory like post Anne rice it's sure you know, it's, a, it's this tantalizing sexy sort of lifestyle yeah. but this is the first time that i've ever been like yeah i could do that <laughs> i could sure. i could buy into if that's what it's like yeah, absolutely. if this is the kind of love that you can find with somebody then right. why would you not want this life for yourself yeah and i like that you use that word life um and they you called them people and you kind of tried to distance yourself from it a little bit but there's this interesting way in which okay yes they are these strange mythological beings vampires who uh seem to be immortal or would be tempted to call immortal but um are characterized actually by a profound fragility in this film i think that's that's one thing that really drew me to it where um their existence is so threatened where they can no longer find uh uh, a secure means of nourishment and they could be wiped out at any time. And in fact, quite nearly are. Um, and to see, um, you know, John Hurt, uh, Christopher Marlowe's character, who's at least been around since he got his waistcoat in 1586 or, <laughs> or so, or 1566 or something, um, you know, to see this old, very old vampire pass away. Um, it's just a very interesting move to have, have these vampires who are, who are themselves threatened rather than the threatening force. Yeah. That kind of reversal of fortune is very interesting and makes them so sympathetic and makes them mortal like us and therefore so much more relatable. So I, I, yeah, I'm really intrigued by that attentiveness to vulnerability in this film, even, even in a case where we would be tempted to think of these beings as invulnerable it's because I've said this phrase before, but they've figured it out. Yeah. And you see the young impetuous vampire mm-hmm. with Ava right. that she hasn't figured out yet. She hasn't matured into how <clears throat> right. to do this all properly, that she's all about kind of the flash and consumption and just right. getting whatever she can and just yeah. like eating people by right. the body full. Right. Meanwhile, <laughs> Adam and Eve and Kit, they all like when they consume blood, they try to find the purest source possible. Yep try to get it as almost ethically as possible Absolutely, like yeah. they're trying to not cause any harm they're they're you know disrupting the the blood service industry fine right. um but they're paying well for this product that they're right. receiving and they only consume like a shot glass full at any given time right like they're not they're never gorging right and it's this really really 
fantastic ecstatic experience whenever yes. they do drink the blood and even even ava has it when she drinks blood yeah absolutely. that you know it it's, like, it's almost like their entire day is distilled down to this like two minute experience yes. and then the real question of what a vampire is is what you do with the rest of the time right right which is i think um exactly how one of my favorite weird poet philosophers Alfonso Lingus describes the life of an animal that uh, we tend to think of other animals as characterized by a drive for survival and the need to eat but he says like even a small fish or um, any animal that you can think of doesn't spend all of its time uh, eating and has all that extra time to kind of wander and um, sort of go about its thing and and expel these sort of excess energies i think is very interesting there and they're they're i'm very interested in this question of what it means to be an animal um and what it means for humans to be animals um something that i've you know explored a length in my academic work but i'm always uh very intrigued when i see it at work and in film and in other media and um yeah i just find it a really fascinating question here where you know to see Eve's joyful curiosity about the world around her, coupled with a meticulous study of it, where you know all of them, or both of them, I should say, on on command or uh, by reflex, can name um, everything they see by its Latin names. You know, um, but it happens at moments of surprise and uh, with great excitement. You know, I love the scene where um, Eve is approaching Adam's home. And she stops in her tracks and uh, with excitement says, oh, Mephitis, Mephitis, the striped skunk. You know, she's just so delighted to see this specimen that she recognizes probably from the pages of some um, thick Latin tome (laughs) that she's read. But um, nevertheless, has this great experience of wonder, even seeing something that most people would widely regard to be a pest and a disgusting nuisance, you know, and. I I felt so much like I identified with her at those moments. That's a kind of experience to which I aspire and which I've had, you know, many times in my time here in London, you know, skunks, not striped skunks, but um, skunks are very common in London. And, you know, I used to live uh, on campus and I would walk home um, sometimes after a night at the bar and it would be a 30 or 40 minute walk and, uh, you know, I'd come across these skunks kind of rummaging through the fields or through trash or recycling or whatever. And I was always kind of awestruck by them. They're very beautiful. And um, I think it's, I think that's what I love so much about Eve is that she kind of can teach us to see the world anew, to approach it with wonder and curiosity and a limitless curiosity. I think the fact that she's older or apparently older than Adam as she as Tilda Swinton says in these interviews and whatnot, she's older than Adam and yet is still characterized by this great enthusiasm, boundless enthusiasm and excitement and curiosity is just such a wonderful thing. And yeah, I think it's a great way to be. So, and that's the gift that she gives to Adam as well, because he, he gets so caught up in the melancholy and the sadness of, you know, look at all the things that the humans are, sorry, the zombies, as he calls them, look at all the things that they're destroying, look at what they're doing. And she's like, okay, so don't, don't look at them, look at everything else or look at the things that they're creating. Let's, let's celebrate the world. And, and it's that same kind of distillation process I was talking about before right. with with their relationship. She especially has done that with the whole 
world where she's figured out how to kind of filter her experience and to limit her experiences of, you know, if I, if I go to Tangiers for this chunk of time and I just appreciate everything that is here. And then once she's almost like, well, I mean, she's a vampire. Like once she's, once she's sucked it dry of all the novelty (laughs) and and wonder that that place has to offer, then there's a new place. Right. And then you can even go back to the same place that you were at before and it'll be changed because of the nature of them being immortal. You can you can go back home and experience right. it anew, which right. is why Detroit... I mean, I don't know anything about Tangier, so sure. I've got nothing to I say about it. I barely know more than you do. But where, where Detroit is such a fascinating space, and you kind of mentioned it before, that it's this, it's this relic of right. American industrialization. Yeah. And for Adam, it's this home of so many different kinds of kinds of music and all these people who have been so influential and you can you can go there and you can appreciate it for that and you can also see it for this this living relic of what it once was and you can appreciate the the architecture as as almost like a gravesite of modern civilization that you know that either this is where everything is going or you can look backwards as well like there's so much to be seen everywhere as long as you're you have that open-mindedness to see it and to experience it and to to have the courage to look outside of yourself and to just be willing to look and see i really like jarmish's attention to difference that manifests itself everywhere even in detroit when they're uh talking about places that they could go and adam says have you seen the motown museum and eve says uh well i was always more of a stacks girl myself and i didn't understand this reference i had to look it up but um as it turns out stacks was a competitor record label to Motown records. And so even, you know, at that moment where we'd be tempted to say, oh, well, Detroit was the birthplace of Motown. Well, of course, Motown itself was a differentiated genre, you know, and um, or was a record label that was a part of a time and a place with many actors and many um, differences among them. And I think that attention to difference is just so important. I think it's a great starting point for relating to others and to relating to the world around you. And I think that's what I find so compelling about the relationship. I think this is getting back to something you said earlier that, you know, they're, they're different people. They live in different worlds and their relationship is possible and interesting precisely because of that. And I think that, you know, that sort of model of loving each other precisely because of their differences, not in spite of them is really wonderful and something to which we should all aspire, I think. And I think it's something I haven't really seen very much of in film or elsewhere. I mean, it's something I try to think about in, in philosophy, you know, through what Derrida or Levinas will call alterity or difference, difference between people, I guess, but also all kinds of others. But I don't want (laughs) to get too bogged down in philosophical jargon here, but I think, um, yeah, I think starting from thinking about difference is really important and, you know, is, is an important part of friendship and love and all sorts of things. You know, there, I guess I was thinking about something (laughs) Aristotle says about friendship where, um, excellent friends see one another as a second self, which is something that's always, I've always found really profound that, um, you love your friend for their for their own sake you know the way you um the way you seek your own interest you seek the interest of your friend the the good of their, their benefit and whatnot but i think like 
I also want to think about friendship as possible because of differences, because of people living in very different worlds and being interested in very different things and, and having very different desires, I guess, as we were talking about Adam and Eve being, um, you put it nicely to say that Adam is an introvert and Eve is an extrovert and that nevertheless they can love each other and find a way to negotiate those differences. I think is tremendous and, uh, ethical. I can say that <laughs> maybe one thing I want to talk about in this film is like the unconscious or instinct, something like that. You know, he, he, he was trying to make their appearance a little bit wild to show that they're wild beings that they have, they're driven by this intense kind of instinct. And, um, they're, they're, the actors are, um, wearing wigs, I guess, in the film. And in order to make them a little thicker and a little wilder, they actually used the hair of other animals in them. So they're right. I heard there's like yak hair yeah, in yeah, there yak and, and goat, I think hair, um, which is fascinating. I mean, it, it occurred to me that their hair is quite peculiar and beautiful and fascinating, but it, it, it didn't occur to me that they were wearing wigs or that, uh, you know, even less that it would be, um, the hair of other animals, but I find that well, really you, interesting. Yeah, you can definitely tell with Eve at yeah, least with that right. enormous, like eight foot mop of <laughs> right. But I mean, <laughs> maybe I just I don't think about costuming that much. But I loved the sort of tousled appearance um, and their kind of intensity. And I, I think like I don't know. There's just something fundamentally important to this film about instinct and about following your instincts or that you cannot help but follow your instincts. And I mean, even Jarmusch says that this is a kind of um, important thing to him as a filmmaker, that he doesn't set out with a meticulous plan. Um, you know, it's not just that everything happens by the book and uh, he writes it all out in advance and then goes and just shoots it with his machine or, um, you know, works it out all, all mechanically. But he says that he goes and sort of gathers material for a film um, and just kind of lets tries to let the film tell him what it wants and just kind of follows that. And I think that there's something, I know there's something important about reckoning with your own instincts that the characters in this film face. And that is shown to be very important that they are these kind of different personality types, um, with these very intense desires and, you know, and they wrestle with them too. Of course, there were those scenes we were talking about where, um, they see blood and are, uh, intensely tempted by it. These instincts can be negotiated and trained a little bit, but are nevertheless um, important and irresistible in certain ways. I don't know. I think it's more about being honest with yourself. Sure. Like about understanding kind of like they're, they're very aware of their biological imperatives. Right. Like at the end, they're not, they're not torn up about the right. fact that they're going to kill somebody. Like they, they, they've already negotiated that with themselves that right. if it comes down to it, we can live by taking life. We would just right. rather not. It's kind of like, right. you know, like if, if a vegetarian goes hungry and right. all there is in front of them is meat, they're probably going to eat meat to survive. Sure. But it's interesting that they have an option here that they don't kill the young the young couple they decide to turn them into vampires you know to just sort of transform them rather than killing them outright you know which is odd because we've, we've seen we've seen that making vampires can go really bad and this is where it takes that it takes that turn where like what if you're making two more avas Right, right. Right. Like, like yeah, there's, they don't know what they're getting into. They don't know what they're getting into. Right. This is introducing a whole other layer of chaos to things that, sure. that it's not kind of clear why they would do that. Like is, is death really so, well, I guess as immortal beings, like death would be truly frightening for them, but like, right. like, 
yeah. why is that the choice that that you make it that was perplexing to me but but ultimately i think that as i started to say before that it's about understanding what the urges are controlling them when you can being honest about them when you can't and it's about what you do at the rest of your time when right. when you've kind of created that safe place where right. you know you, you've established those constraints around around the thing so that you're as in control as you can be right allowing you to explore other facets of yourself and 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 explore the things that you want to because you've got the things that you need to do under control I and mean, at that point we're getting more into like hierarchies of needs and sure. things like that but i mean there's an interesting wild card in there in the film where even eve is like very interested in chaos or something peculiar where um she's talking to kit in the uh cafe and she refers to him as christopher marlowe and he um yeah, scolds her scolds her for it yeah exactly so never refer to me by that name in public and she calls him paranoid but then she kind of pushes it further and says wouldn't it be so interesting if we could just if we just drop uh drop a few hints there and there here and there can't we just kind of reveal a little bit about ourselves to people and make them guess and it would create such wonderful chaos she says so i think that's a kind of interesting part of the equation here is that yeah they want to live they want to survive but they also want to live as intensely as possible and maybe that involves uh including some more vampires in the picture you know (laughs) some people to talk to you know they're so cut off from others that and especially when kit has just died you know they have one less friend in the world so right and adam's made it clear that he you know he doesn't interact with the others right you know yeah, i, that's I right. have no heroes he says right. know, he doesn't have anybody that he aspires to or looks up to so <laughs> which is hilarious because he has that wall full of portraits of great artists and writers and musicians and so on All right, but i think that it I, i'm curious to know if that's if there's a follow-up line that he never spoke out loud mm. just out of kind of self-loathing but it, it's not i don't have heroes i create them Oh, that's interesting. Like, I, I saw that wall as people that right. he was, you know, he was involved in the creation of like, okay, I, you know, I, I, oh, showed, I, I showed Bo Diddley this chord and um, that turned into, you know, that blew up and he's kind of tracing mm-hmm. the lineage of his own influence on the human world oh, where that's it's, interesting. it's a really private celebration of himself that nobody else would ever understand what that is. I think that would be... Because that's what we see him do. Like, he, yeah. he, we see him just kind of drop music into the world, like I've said right. before, and just kind of let it let it happen. Or maybe even just following the trail of where his influence has led. I like the, I like the idea of them, you know, tracing a bit of influence. I think it would be absurd if he had that much influence in the world. Because if somebody, if one person could be that creative, if one living being could be that creative, namely him, then others would obviously be able to be creative too. You know, like I think um, for him to be too exclusive an origin of creativity would be, I would find it really a shame. But I, I think for me, I saw it as one of those kind of internal contradictions that even somebody who uh, has lived an incredibly long life and um, has developed themselves at length and who is attentive to himself as much as possible, even he still has internal contradictions that he, he thinks he has no heroes and he right. thinks he uh, has such a great distaste for humanity, the zombies, as you nicely pointed out. He never says human beings as far as I could tell. He wants to uh, have this kind of chip on his shoulder or, aggress- or aggressiveness towards humans or uh, protection from them. But nevertheless, 
he cannot help but right. love he's, them. Yeah, he's kind of petulant them. about it. Like, I yeah. don't want any heroes. Right. Like, yeah. well, he like, wants to be a self-made look, yeah. man. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, the unfortunate place that that ends up is um, death, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with or with those uh, fatalistic um, self-destructive desires. You know, if you want no one else in your life, there, there is no way to really do that except by dying. <laughs> you know, I think you, you need others. Um, and I think what fascinates me about Adam is he has to come to accept that, that others invade his space um, in spite of his best efforts for better and for worse, really. I mean, Eve comes to save him, but Eva comes to destroy his home <laughs> basically right. effectively, you know, or destroy the life that he's built in, in Detroit. I think one thing that fascinates me so much about this film is that, while it's a vampire film, while it has a sort of fantastic premise, um, all of that is pressed in the service of something really uh, relatable, something really real, something intimate and visceral and personal. You know, like it could have been so ridiculous and over the top and too wide ranging with all these references and um, their long lives and everything. But uh, I feel like they're. Um, the breadth of their exposure and the length of their lives like ends up lending this very personal emotional investment in in art and in their lives and in in everything that they do like it yeah I think I'm just really fascinated by the length of their lives being used to uh, imbue their relationship with art with such a personal touch like it 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 could become this very impersonal thing. Like, Oh, they just have this like God's eye view of history because they've been around for so long, but it ends up being like, um, it ends up being a way of expressing how invested they are in, in art and in the world around them, you know? Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're really participants great. in yes, history. Exactly. They're not yeah, just, exactly. they're not, not just observers, observers of yeah. it where they're yeah, not, well they're not like living in these immortal ivory towers where they're looking down and casting judgment. They're yeah. in, in their respective ways. They're participants. Like, yeah, exactly. Even when they're trying to be, or even when Adam, I guess is trying to <laughs> have that sort of ivory tower approach. He's still very personally invested. He still needs to put his work out there. He yeah, still exactly, needs to be involved. Exactly. That was another, like, that was the last kind of strange thing that wasn't, it didn't seem like it was intentionally strange. It seemed like Jarmusch was trying to, you know, cast judgments on humanity when oh. he, when, uh, when Adam had figured out kind of the solution for electricity, when oh, he, when he right. set up the antenna in the basement or in the, uh, right. in the electrical room that was just right. bypassing all this circuitry. And he was like, no, right. no, no, I'm just, I'm using the waves from the atmosphere, the atmosphere right. to power this entire <laughs> apartment building right. where it was just like, it was a little ridiculous, but I mean, Jarmish has this funny fascination with Tesla, um, who is enjoying this f- odd kind of renaissance like there's this renewed interest in tesla who is this sort of forgotten um early inventor of um electricity or explorer of electrical technologies and that um it seems sort of like that edison was a was a sort of ceo character almost that had these people working for him and kind of took their ideas and then patented them and popularized them and so on but that um, tesla was the selfless um, you know, investigator of 
um, this work and wanted, wanted, wanted electricity to be free. And he was like looking into ways to transmit it wirelessly. And, um, I mean, who knows if that would have been possible, but I think what's interesting here, maybe from Jarmusch's perspective or, you know, um, that the film is trying to say is that while we preserve all this wonderful stuff from history, that maybe some really interesting things are lost and kind of, um, fall by the wayside as well it, it it does also make the characters separate and it makes their plight a bit more unique than just being human characters okay because they have the the intellect and the the context of every of you know centuries of history to kind of be able to live outside of and in some cases like above humanity while still right, right. while still getting dirty with it right like he's not sharing this technology with everybody he's right. He's just worked out an easier solution for himself to help himself stay off the grid. Right, right. And then we get that scene at the end when they're kind of discussing, when Adam and Eve are discussing their mutual destruction and how, how you know, the future of the world. They're like, we don't know if we're going to keep living, but we right. know for sure that, you know, humanity is going to start fighting over war or over water, water pretty soon. Right. And, you know, they, they, they have this bigger picture where right. even though so much of the beauty of the story is how human they are there's still these moments where when they step outside of it they can pass judgment and that gives Jarmusch sure. a chance to cast judgment on humanity right. and to to kind of point out some of the fallacies of sure of modern civilization it's interesting to try to use that wide perspective on time to be critical of our own time i feel like that's a valuable use of that vampire trope it's just kind of a shame that it, it comes across silly whenever they do it. Yeah, like the technology, like him, him, Jimmy rigging that, right? That electrical thing is silly, and then when all okay. of a sudden it's like, oh, they're f- are they still fighting wars about oil? Like it seems like right. a bit, like it, it, okay. it, it doesn't resonate as much as I think it was intended to. That it's supposed mm. to be this this big wide awakening where it's like, oh, these people who I've learned to love and to invest myself in, right. they're telling me things about the bigger picture. Instead, of, it comes across as again the the director kind of sticking his nose in and saying Hmm. by the way that's interesting i didn't i didn't it didn't strike me as overly ridiculous i mean i thought it was humorous like it's it's kind of funny and maybe a little over the top but i think i just really value that attempt to show how limited our concerns really are like we tend to think like oil is like the be all and end all of energy and uh, we tend to think that our present day technology is sort of the be all and end all you know, and generally the most we can imagine is uh, more and more efficient forms of what we already have, you know, like faster computers and uh, faster cars or more fuel efficient cars or whatever. But to take that opportunity to try to say like, okay, even that is like a very limited view on history. I think that's really valuable to try to just like get us to zoom out a little bit, even if it has to happen through this sort of ridiculous construct or like slightly funny, comical invention you know that might seem totally implausible like to take what was it vibrations or what it what is it waves from the atmosphere or something i don't know it's it's purposely vague and maybe kind of funny but i think it works i think it like i think it i think it can do the work that it's trying to do which is to get us to step back a little bit i think it's a very hard work to do um and you can only kind of do it so much like you you can't really step out of your perspective you know you're still even if i'm trying to think about the future i'm still like a 21st century person trying to think about the future you know but nevertheless i feel like that is valuable and worthwhile 
Did you find it funny, like the, the film overall? Is it? Do you think it's cheesy? No, I didn't find yeah. it. I didn't find it cheesy. I thought that there were a couple of moments of of well placed sure. humor. Um, nothing's really coming to mind, sure. but it, it never felt. That's why I was so resentful of the, the description. That right. maybe it's yeah. a great way to bookend it. That that it, it's it's insulting yes. to suggest that this movie is silly. Right. When it, it's so very much not, even though it has right. these these couple of what I what I thought were silly elements to it, sure. it's really fundamentally about the human experience, Absolutely. and it's, it takes itself as seriously as it needs to. And I took it very seriously. Like this is yeah. a yeah. really, re- like an incredibly beautiful relationship yeah. that they have, and it's one that it feels immediately like you should aspire to. Absolutely. And yeah. It's very compelling. It's so condescending and insulting right. to have it described in the way that it is to hipsters. Yeah. To, to either and, a sell it short or right. B set people up for something different than what the movie ultimately right. is. It's no, it's, it's not silly. It's not, it's not campy. It's yeah, totally agreed. It's a terrible yeah. way to end a sentence, but no, I, I mean, yeah. it's, it's just interesting to hear some criticisms of it. I think I'm just so I'm so on board with Jarmesh now. Like I was I was really, really curious about him before I saw this film. Like I saw it in theaters at the Highland here in London. And uh and once I saw it I was just absolutely in love with Jarmesh's work and I've like um voraciously devoured it, you know, since then. And so whenever I gush about it and I hear people say that they didn't like this or that film or this or that line or whatever, I'm kind of I'm like a little stunned by it because I'm like, oh, but he's a, he feels like this friend of mine or something. I'm just like excited to see where he takes things, and I just always want to like find the best, <laughs> uh, find the best in those films. You know what I mean? Like to give them the the most vigorous defense that I can. So that's a great place to come at it from, though. Yeah. It's uh, I think that ultimately anybody who's doing something creative is doing so with a really or generally if somebody's doing something authentically then that deserves to be recognized and they right. deserve to have you know to have somebody if they're not doing a great job of speaking their own voice then kind of having people speak for them and find sure. beauty in what they're doing and i think sure. that's i think that's a wonderful place to be coming at it from well that seems about as good a time as any to uh to wrap things up the way that i always like to end these is with a uh you know, since we watched this on Netflix, that, uh, you know, Netflix wants you to assign a rating to the movie oh. of of one, two, three, four, or five stars. I, it's, you know, it's almost shameful to uh, to slap a star rating on a movie like this, but I want to know in your profile, uh, how many stars is this getting, and who's your MVP from the movie? What's the... Oh, great questions. Okay. Simply and unabashedly, five stars. I absolutely love this film. I relate to it on so many different levels. I love it as an intimate character study of both the main characters, and I love it as a portrait of a long, healthy, familiar, and complicated relationship. The MVP for me is undoubtedly Eve Tilda Swinton. She's amazing. I uh, I feel like my I identify my best tendencies in her, and I just think she's such a great depiction of curiosity and um, joy and patience and, um, eagerness, you know, that I just, um, I'm just so thrilled to have a character like that, um, in my life and in film. (laughs) How about you? Uh, for me, it's, uh, I've, I've started to kind of align my thoughts more with, how Netflix describes their ratings instead of it being like for something to be a five star movie, it needs to be 
tremendous and the most influential okay. thing in my life. Even if I wasn't being more lenient with it, this movie would still be getting five stars. Great. Because, you know, for, for Netflix, five stars means you love it. And oh, okay. unquestionably, right. I love this movie. Right. It's, it's right. incredible. And I've said uh, several times already that this is... This is probably my favorite it's my favorite piece of vampire fiction but it's also i think Great. my favorite love story that yeah i have re- to agree with in, both those statements <laughs> if not ever then at least in recent memory sure. that it's it's on top of all of this on top of everything that we've talked about with their kind of harmonious symbiotic relationship where they're influential to each other when they need it to be but so respectful of each other when they're not Right. They also like they do still have that passion. It's not right. like yes. they're it's not like they're flatlining on neutral. Right. When they're worried that they're going to die, right. they're making out in an alley. That's like, right. And like, that's such a, that's the most passionate kiss I've seen in a film that I can think of. Um I actually when I was excitedly posting about my <laughs> upcoming appearance on Netflix, I posted a screen grab of that exact moment. Um, which I just think is incredible. It really is, and like when they're dying, the right. just they're or when they're when they're drinking their last right. flask of blood. Right. As soon as Eve takes a swig, the next thing right. she has like her hand, her hand doesn't other. even think about what it's doing. It right. automatically is right. passing it over to Adam. Right. Like they have such deep love and respect right. and passion for each other that it's it's so remarkable. Yeah. Um, for MVP, I if. You can forgive cheating. I want to give it to the both of them. <laughs> okay. Because as uh, if I had to choose one, it would be Tilda right. Swinton. Because okay. sometimes Adam comes across as, you know, this this kind of petulant child that I didn't okay. always enjoy watching as much. Okay. But Eve is more wonderful for Adam, just like right. Adam is more wonderful for Eve. Yeah, And absolutely. both characters depend on each other, and they're both played to, I think perfection yeah that absolutely i can't imagine either either role being played better yeah me neither so so I, i'll uh yeah, yeah I'll i'm gonna that. cheat i'll yeah I'll, i'm gonna I give it totally to both because i think fine. it's i think it's uh i think it's really important for them both to be recognized for it right because if you take one of those characters out of the film it would become kind of it's, flat it's like an it, entirely different movie yeah it's, absolutely yeah well, that's going to wrap it up for everything for this week. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for being here, for coming on, for having this discussion, and for introducing me to this movie. It's been Great. on so much my, for me. It's been on my list since it Has dropped it? onto Netflix, and right. it never... Is it, it's recent, is it? It's been on there for not terribly long, right. but but it's also like I needed a reason for it to get bumped Great. bumped up I'm my priority list. So. Reason. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything going on with you that people should know about anywhere that people can find you on, on social media or? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I have an academia.edu page. Probably the, the, the thing that I mainly do now is make music. Um, I don't know if that is too. No, uh, bring it on. Okay. I will. This is another reason that I actually identify with, Adam so much is because he makes such incredibly beautiful music in that film. I mean, it's also Jim Jarmusch's band Squirrel who does a lot of that music, but um, it it touched me on this really deep level, this kind of like experimental sort of metal sounding, sort of weird ambient drone kind of thing. And, you know, um, I've started my own sort of solo project uh, very recently called Animal Vegetable Mineral, which you can find on Facebook and Bandcamp. Um, I'm very excited about it. I think I'm I don't know, making the best music I've made in my life, which is, uh, feels amazing to say, but it's this sort of weird, um, ambient 
shoegaze drone kind of weird experimental thing that I do with a bass and some weird guitar pedals. So I don't know. They're really long songs and um, pensive and weird. So I feel like if you like the music in this film, I hope it's not too self-congratulatory for me to say that I think you might <laughs> like my music too. But um, yeah, you can find me there. I'm playing some shows in London um, in November and December um, that I'll have details about on that that website. So you can check that out. Um, yeah, academic turned musician, I guess. it's. I'm fine with it. It's a good place to be. <laughs> I love it. Well, as I said already, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, I, I yeah, love the conversation. Me. I love the movie, and Great, uh, and I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Great, thanks very much. Awesome. I can't wait to see what you do next too. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. The music you're hearing behind me is from Andrew's project, Animal, Vegetable, Mineral. The piece is called Of Whales Like the Earth, large and round and surrounded by birds. You can check out the whole track at Andrew's Bandcamp page, which you can find linked in the episode page at netflixblog.wordpress.com. While you're on the blog, be sure to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like articles, reviews, as well as a weekly look at what's new on Canadian Netflix. Check us out on our social media platforms, starting with Facebook at facebook.com slash netflixpodcast. Over on Tumblr, you can find us at netflixpodcast.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at at Netflix Pod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. If you like what you've heard this week, why not head over to iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use and subscribe so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, why not drop a rating and a review and let us know what you think? The Netflix Podcast was produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore, and special thanks are owed for this week's episode to Caroline Deason for graciously providing the space to record. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix Podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new discussion about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, baby, you ain't streamed nothing yet.